Hello, I'm Julian Bagini and welcome to the latest Microphilosophy podcast. Artificial intelligence is often thought of as something of a geeky subject whose central players are mathematically minded nerds with all the social graces of pocket calculators. So it may come as a pleasant surprise to find that a recent book on the subject is a warm, human, humane and insightful work by a young writer called Brian Christian. I spoke to Christian at the Arnold Feeney Centre earlier this year at an event organised as part of the Bristol Festival of Ideas. His book, The Most Human Human, takes as its narrative thread his participation in a competition based on the Turing test. So I started by asking him to explain precisely what the Turing test is. As the computer was only just beginning to be developed, Turing was already asking these very philosophical questions. You know, could we someday build a machine that could think? And if there were someday such a machine, how would we know? And what Turing did was he basically put philosophy to the side and said, well, I'd like to propose a practical test. Convene a panel of scientists to have these five-minute-long typed chats So they'll be sending messages, and messages will be appearing on their screens. But the catch is that they don't know if the messages they're getting back are coming from real people who are essentially hidden in a room down the hall, or computer programs pretending to be real people hidden in a room down the hall. And so it's up to these scientists in five minutes of conversation to try to see if they can make that distinction of of which is which. And if they can't, then we will reach a point, as Turing puts it, where we'll speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. When Turing first proposed the test in the 50s, it was really a a pure hypothetical. But starting around the early 1990s, a rogue millionaire roll-up portable disco dance floor salesman (laughs) from the United States named Hugh Loebner, decides that we've reached a point where we're ready to actually be holding these tests every year and puts up some of his uh, disco dance floor money to back it. And so every year since 1991, the AI community has been holding what's called the Loebner Prize, which is effectively a Turing test. And what's interesting about the Loebner Prize is that it it has these two awards. The computer that receives the highest score every year wins what's called the Most Human Computer Award. What I found to be the truly intriguing and bizarre thing is that there is a second award to the real person who achieves the highest score every year. (laughs) Which is called the Most Human Human Award. And you decided you wanted to become the most human human. (laughs) Well, that's right. Turing's famous prediction was that by the year 2000, these computer programs would be fooling us about 30% of the time, and that as a result, we'd basically regard machines to be thinking. This famously did not come true, and even by the 2000 Loebner Prize, the best computer programs were lucky if they could fool even a single judge into thinking that they were a person. But what was really shocking was the 2008 competition was this really watershed moment where the top computer program fooled three out of the 12 judges, meaning humanity sort of dodged the bullet uh, by one vote. And so there was this feeling that the 2009 competition could be the the pivotal year. It could be the decisive year where the computers finally crossed that threshold. 
And when I read about this, there was this voice inside me that said, not on my watch. <laughs> okay, so you are trying to be the most human human. The, the core idea around this book, Turns, is, is your kind of insight you had, which is that you know, people always think about AI as telling us about you know, machines and everything, but you thought that actually by looking into artificial intelligence, it could actually teach us what it is to be human. The Turing test really cuts both ways. The Oxford philosopher John Lucas says that if machines pass the Turing test, it will not be because they are so intelligent, but because we are so wooden. <laughs> and I think the, the kernel of truth there is that we tend to think of these scientific contests as, as measuring against some sort of reliable benchmark. Well, in the Turing test, there's no such firm measurement. We were comparing the machines against a moving target, which is our own ability to communicate. And so it was my feeling that these programs that are designed to mimic human conversation put a kind of pressure on us to, in fact, communicate better. And so it occurred to me that by looking at what sorts of simplifications chatbot programmers have to make, you could, in fact, counterintuitively learn something about the true complexity of natural language. The distinction between what we think of as being kind of computing and what is human and who's mimicking who here is quite fluid. I mean, there's an interesting thing you talk about Claude Shannon. He was an early IT pioneer. And what's interesting is he fell in love with a computer. What does that mean, <laughs> that he fell in love with a computer? Yes, that's right. Claude Shannon is, is one of the founders of modern information science. And he met his wife, Betty, at work in Bell Labs in the 1940s, and she was a computer. If that sounds odd to us, there was nothing odd at all about it to them or their colleagues. In fact, engineers and computers got together all the time. What makes this story make a little bit more sense is that before the word computer referred to these digital processing devices that have increasingly proliferated in our modern life, it meant something else. Namely, it was a job description. So a, a computer was someone whose job it was to do mathematical calculations for a living. So it's very fascinating when you read these early papers in computer science because you have these early pioneers like Turing and von Neumann trying to describe to their audience what exactly it is they're working on. And they say, well, we've got these machines. They're kind of like a, a computer, basically. Um, and what they mean is they're kind of like someone who does math for a living. And so in the span of 50 or 60 years, the quotation marks, as it were, have essentially migrated, where in the 1940s, a piece of mathematical gadgetry was like a computer. In the 21st century, it's the human math whiz that's like a computer. You talk about artificial intelligence as maggot therapy, <laughs> meaning it consumes only those portions that are no longer human, restoring us to health. This is a really interesting idea. Could you un unpack that for us? Yeah. So if you're not familiar with the, what maggot therapy is, um, don't Google it, because <laughs> the, the image results will make it impossible to eat. But the basic idea is that if you have decaying flesh or gangrene or one of these things, you can actually put maggots on yourself and they will only eat the rotten parts because that's what they prefer. And this is a legitimate medical procedure. I think of that in a very strange way as being perhaps an analogy for what role computers have to play in the economy. So one of the first questions that I think comes up for many people when you think about artificial intelligence or computers is, will a robot be doing my job? And what I think is 
complicated and interesting about that question is that there's an intermediate phase between the period of time where a human's doing the job and a machine's doing the job, which is that there's this intermediate phase where a human is doing the job like a machine in a, in a purely procedural, purely repetitive way. The first step is kind of draining the job of its cognitive elements. The second step is actually replacing the person. Most people are, are anxious about the second phase, but I'm anxious about the first phase. And that once you get to the point where the job is purely rote, purely mechanical, to have the computer step in may in fact be a kind of relief. There's a kind of a, an appeal really for us to, to value our humanity in this book and to recognize that we are under constant threat of turning our interactions into the kind of uh, machine-like interactions. And you have quite a lot of uh, examples of that. And I think one of the ones you talk about is customer service centers, particularly um, telephone centers. That's right. Often what happens is you have this eerie feeling that you are essentially interacting with chatbot software that just so happens to be running on a human brain um, rather than on a computer. In, in many cases, what the, what the person sitting there is doing is going onto a computer and typing in what you're saying and then reading to you what's on the screen. So in fact, there is not much of a difference between that and just going on the website where in fact you were dealing directly with AI. What are, what are they stripping away from a truly human interaction which enables them to make it kind of mechanized? I, I think there are a couple of things that are happening in this case. The, the metaphor that I use in the book is borrowed from architecture, which is what I call site specificity. There's a big difference between a good building and a good building for this particular site. This, for me, is a real metaphor for the way that conversation works. That part of what I think it makes human intelligence so you know, impressive and complex is that we're continuously adapting ourselves to the very particular circumstances. And to stop doing that, I think, takes us down this, this sort of chatbot road where no matter how you phrase it or, or what tone you use, they give you the exact same answer. Yeah, so you become part of a procedure rather than a genuine That's interaction. Right. But then one of the things you say that these things do rather deliberately, perhaps, is they sort of disrupt intimacy. Yeah, one of the reference points that I use for intimacy in this part of the book is uh, there was an American comedy movie with Adam Sandler called Fifty First Dates, where Adam Sandler plays a guy who falls in love with a woman who has no long-term memory. So every time they go out, it's their first date as far as she's concerned. And so he has this increasingly cumbersome task of how to basically boot up their entire relationship history with this woman so that they can sort of keep the relationship moving forward. And to some extent, I think that's part of what's going on in you know, a customer service setting. Uh, one of the anecdotes that I use in the book was I, I was having a problem with my phone where my phone would only work if I pressed down on the top of it in a very particular way. And so I was trying to talk to the service people at my phone company while I'm holding this thing down. And I experienced this real anxiety, which was if I lose contact with this plastic thing that I'm pressing down, then I, I have to start all over. I've been talking to this woman for like an hour. I finally persuaded her this is a legitimate problem. She's, she's built up a kind of sympathy for me by going through all these attempted solutions that didn't work. And she's just about to crack and break with protocol and mail me the new part. And if my hand slips, I've lost everything. I have to start all over again with someone else. 
the, the chess thing is very interesting because of course chess was the archetypal battleground for a long time between the human mind and the uh, computer mind. The, the esteem in which chess was held by the scientific community changed drastically over the course of the famous IBM versus Garry Kasparov match. It was considered by many in the AI field to be something that drew not only from the rational capabilities of people, but also from their fighting instincts, a sense of fear or danger or insight or creativity. And it was felt by many that that fact would prevent chess from being, uh, you know, encroached on by artificial intelligence. But as we all know, the computer, in fact, did win. And so it was this very strange moment for the AI community where they had really a crossroads, which was to say, either we've made machines that can think, or chess can be played without thinking. And most of the scientists chose to go the latter route, and so they, they effectively threw chess under the bus. Douglas Hofstadter, for example, a very, very, very interesting writer. He was convinced that what he called the mere brute force of a computer would never allow it to compete at a highest level. So when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, he said, my God, I used to think chess required thought, now I realise it doesn't. Now, <laughs> the point about this is, there's a serious yeah. point here, though, isn't there, which is that the tendency is that once you can compute something, once something can be shown to be uh, doable by a computer, we simply say, well, OK, but that's just not what thinking is anymore. I mean, if we're just simply going to refuse to accept every time a machine does something we can do, we're just going to turn around and say, oh, well, it wasn't real thinking then. Uh, it's, it's this that the computer can't do. Yeah? That's, isn't that the wrong way to define intelligence, what a computer can't do? Yeah, well, this, this sort of backpedaling, it does seem dangerous in the long term. And, you know, our sense of what the word thinking means has been changing along with our ability to to perform certain things with a computer if you go back and look at the more ancient theories of what was the center of human uniqueness aristotle and plato put a lot of their chips on reason and rationality and logical thinking and descartes really does the same thing he says i think therefore i am not I perceive things or sense things or I have desires or you know, emotions, but it's I think, therefore I am. And what I think is the great irony of artificial intelligence is that it really turns that formulation on its head because, in fact, computers right out of the gate turn out to be capable of things like mathematics and logical deduction and this sort of axiomatic thinking that many of those ancient philosophers hailed as the unique domain of humans that distinguished us from animals. And so I, in some ways I, I describe humans as being kind of trapped between meat and math. <laughs> um, where we're trying to distinguish ourselves from the animal kingdom and we're trying to distinguish ourselves from these purely abstract digital devices at the same time. And to some extent, I think that the development of AI has been healthy for philosophy in the sense that I think it's brought us at peace with a lot of our more sort of animal and creatural aspects in that 
It's been really surprising how resistant things like face recognition, voice recognition, object recognition uh, have been to the efforts of AI teams to, to implement them. I mean, the, the chess example is that even though in the sense we've lost, you still see that there are lessons that we can learn from our defeat. And in particular, there's this very nice idea, which I think comes from chess, but you can then apply it to other things, which is it's this term out of book. The idea is basically that every game of chess begins in the exact same position. Um, so when you see grandmasters sit down to play, you know, they don't look at the starting <coughs> configuration of the pieces and think, okay, what's, what seems like the best move in this position? This is a position that's been played millions of times. And the same is true as you go into the game. And the game is not really considered to have begun until the first moment that the game gets out of book which is to say the first unique position that arises in the game. The first time they reach a configuration on the board that has never been played before. In many ways, I felt that the same thing was happening when I was participating in the Turing test, which is that a lot of these Turing test chatbots are effectively giant opening books of conversation. So one of, one of my competitors was a chatbot program called Cleverbot. And the way that Cleverbot works is that it hangs out on the internet recording everything that people say to it. So you can almost imagine some alien lands on the earth and has no idea how humans communicate, but just has a piece of notebook paper. So it comes up to someone and they say, hi. So it notes, humans often start conversations with the word hi. Okay. And it walks down the street, bumps into someone else and says, Hi. person replies, hi, how are you? And it notes down, humans often continue a conversation by saying, hi, how are you? Although it seems extremely painstaking, after being online and talking with hundreds of people simultaneously for, I think, 15 or 20 years now, the Cleverbot program has a database of tens of millions of things that people say in response to other things that people say. And so when you find yourself at the Cleverbot website, basically a big part of what's going on is you're in its opening book. And I was stunned at the range of this database. So I would try to tell it jokes. It would anticipate the punchline. <laughs> I would try talking to it in French, and then it would condescendingly correct my grammar. <laughs> And it was really just remarkable. But the beauty of language is that if you're trying, you can push a conversation to a place where you're saying things that have literally never been said before. And so a big part of what's going on when you're in a Turing test situation is this battle against the conversational book. To some extent, I think the same thing is going on when you're you know, on a date or sitting down with, for tea with an old friend where... You don't want to just sort of run through the, the standard patter, but you want to try and drive the conversation past that into a space where it's this unique, one-of-a-kind one thing. The, the competition itself, let's not give away whether or not whether you won the most human-human. Let's give people yet another reason to actually uh, buy the book. But when you were competing, what, what did humans do wrong um, yeah. that sort of left them vulnerable to being defeated by the machines? Uh, well, the, the history of the Turing test has a number of extremely entertaining backfires. One of the most famous was in the, I think it was either the first or second year that it was being held, one of the human confederates, which is what I was, the, the real people trying to impress the judges, was a Shakespeare scholar. 
And her strategy was, computers don't know anything about literature. You know, it's, it's too wrapped up in analysis and interpretation and feeling. And so I'm going to get into these conversations and I'm just going to unleash a torrent of Shakespeare knowledge on these people. And that's exactly what she did. And the reaction of the judges was, okay, no one knows that much about Shakespeare. <laughs> and the, the thing was a complete disaster, and she was voted a computer by several judges. I think to some extent, the takeaway, well, a takeaway there is raw knowledge is not going to do it. That there's going to have to be something, more a question of, of verbal style or of personality, um, not a simple kind of data dump. So a big part of what I consciously tried to do was to make sure that the judge had a sense of who I was or where I was coming from, even if they were asking me purely factual questions. Mm -hmm. uh, very briefly, just to finish up on, because something happened between you finishing the book and it being published, which you didn't get a chance to comment on, no. which is that IBM's Watson supercomputer um, had a victory over some Jeopardy champions. And what was impressive about Watson was it seemed to understand ambiguity and context a lot more than previous things and this was seen to be another kind of march forward does the watson victory change things at all for me the watson victory is counterintuitively a triumph for us in the sense that if you look at what we find really impressive about a game show champion these people seem to know absolutely everything we're in awe of their encyclopedic memory if you talk to the IBM team about what was challenging about building a supercomputer to defeat them at Jeopardy, they do not talk about putting all world factual knowledge into a giant database as being particularly challenging. That for them, the entire crux of the contest was how to deal with the fuzziness and slipperiness of natural language. How do we deal with these double entendres, with these puns? How do we try to get the gist of what Trebek is getting at when he's t speaking in this very sort of elusive, oblique way? And that turns out to be really the entire challenge. Um, and as far as the IBM team was concerned, it required you know a supercomputer the size of a giant room that had two refrigerator units dedicated to keeping it from melting. And it's something that we do effortlessly, and we're in fact not particularly impressed by a trivia champion's ability to laugh at a pun. <laughs> but what I see as being the really triumphant thing about the match is that it reveals that the, the true complexity of playing a game like Jeopardy is not the thing that distinguishes these champions from us, but it in fact is precisely the thing that we all share. So I think there's something we can take pride in about that. The Most Human Human by Brian Christian is published by Viking in the UK and Doubleday in the USA. And if you want to read more about what makes us who we are, let me not miss this opportunity to recommend um, my own latest book, The Ego Trick, which is published by Garanta. Links to both can be found at microphilosophy.net. And you can also follow Microphilosophy on Twitter. And that's just about it for this edition. So until next time, if nothing prevents... Goodbye.